from the city of brotherly love, this is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. You just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strausser. This is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. As always, this episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor, and SAP Global Platinum Partner, Sador, S-E-I-D-O-R. If your business is ready to move off of QuickBooks, they're ready to take that next step up and really start automating your business processes, please reach out to SAP Platinum Partner, Sador. That's S-E-I-D-O-R.com. Now let's get back to today's episode. We're chatting about creativity, but not your average designer or marketing person. We're going to be talking about taking it to a whole new level, like 10 times in it, okay? And really thinking outside of the box. So who do we have today? None other than Matthew Wingard. Matthew Wingard makes holy shit stationery for brave and daring clients under the name A Fine Press. His work with couples, individuals, and brands blurs a line between function and form, inspiring and engaging, at least as much as it informs. More importantly, Matthew's clients are an incredible group of people who seek to be known and remembered by their people. They bring open hearts and boundless trust to the process, allowing themselves to be known and reflected in their stationery. So I'm going to shut the heck up and let's bring Matthew right on in here. Creative passion. Matthew, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became shark bait. I love it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is going to be <laughs> a fun chat. I can't wait to talk about your creative goodness. So we have a tradition on the show. Very first thing we do, we don't want to know who you are. We're doing a background check, basically. Tell us where you've been, what do you do, how'd you get there? In a nutshell, tell us what makes Matthew, Matthew. As long as this doesn't hold up in court for a background check, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I... Um, I am a creative business owner. I run a company called A Fine Press. Uh, I make holy shit stationery and printed, you know, branding things primarily for events uh, and also B2B. Um, and all of my education, everything that uh, I thought I was leading towards in my life was towards music. Uh, went to undergrad to get a music ed degree, went to grad school. Are you saying that because there's a guitar and... Uh, full stack amp behind me. I figured we could talk about something. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm actually a jazz bass player by education. Uh, yeah, did the whole thing. And during grad school, realized that it wasn't necessarily music as much as the act of creation that excited me. And some things led to a pivot. A lot of it was built around, do you remember this era where hipsters were bringing like uh, spinning wheels onto subways and typewriters into the coffee shops? There was even a website called hipsteroramish.com. Do you remember this? Hipster or Amish? No, I do not remember that. And it's funny, I live in Amish country. Yeah, well, I my grandfather was Amish, so it all connects. Oh, Wow. He bought a truck with his brothers and hid it in the woods until he got shunned. So, which is the only reason I can exist. <laughs> oh my God. That is funny. You yeah. are the, so are, I, I guess since he was shunned, you are shunned. I am not Amish, but with the last name Vengard, 
Wingard, uh, you can imagine, yeah, it was, uh, we are only a couple degrees removed. You go to anywhere in central Ohio, and we've got a family book. I, I don't think it's on my bookshelf here. If you go anywhere in central Ohio and look up the name at the house you're standing at, uh, it is likely in this book of family members that I have that goes back to the 1700s, uh, all Amish people. That is crazy that's crazy so these hipsters right they these hipsters that look amish that it was this era where we were what i think we were trying to do was replace the rituals that our parents and their grandparents and our grandparents got rid of in their lives the stropping a razor and honing it the wringing a chicken's neck for dinner now we go to Publix and get boneless skinless you know all of those rituals we there was an era in our culture where we thought that we were freeing up our time to do more meaningful things, but media and kind of the, the drivel of life got in the way and we just filled it up with junk. And so I, my philosophy is that this, this push towards uh, antique things or things that require uh, handwork, all of this is a search for ritual to replace the ritual in our lives. So we can have meditative moments to connect with ourselves, with, uh, with the world around us, with other people. And um, I thought weddings was a really great place to do that. So I started in weddings uh, specifically, and that's still a large portion of my business, but, uh, weddings and funerals are like the only universal ritual we have anymore as a culture, right? Almost everything else is kind of niche or, or dependent on, uh, your proclivities. And so, um, I fell into this idea. That's crazy. Now that you've just said that, and I've thought about that, it is kind of, kind of crazy that as a culture, it's wedding and, and funerals are, the two main traditions. I mean, you can go into segments like some people all celebrate, you know, like Easter and Christmas and stuff like that. That's only a, a portion of people. That's not everybody. As a whole society, there's two things that we really celebrate, and that's weddings and funerals. I mean, what else is there? Well, it, it even used to be, right, even our television and our news was mostly universal. We had three networks, and if a big thing happened, we were all watching it. Now, it's very rare to get the kind of thing where people who still actually go into an office for work, where everyone has the universal experience around the water cooler that you had even 20 years ago. Right. We don't watch the same show at the same time or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. It's DVR. It's streamed. It's Netflix. It's, you know, all that stuff. You know, I funny side story is it was totally ahead of the curve with that. I wanted to go. I, I'm a diehard Aerosmith fan. Joe Perry is my idol. I got an Aerosmith hat and I was going to see their show in Mexico City and in Monterey, Mexico. And I went down there. The only problem is that one of the days of the show, the Eagles, I'm a diehard Philadelphia Eagles fan, as everybody on this show knows, it's well established. And, you know, it, it's funny because I wanted to, I, I couldn't miss Monday Night Football, which at that time, I think it was on ABC back then. So, like what I did was I found out that there is this thing called sling box. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 The sling box, the original sling boxes. And I'm like, wait a second. So I can set this up. I can use the IR blasters to turn on and off the TV and the channels. And then I can watch on my phone, the TV, albeit there's going to be a little bit of a delay. You got to remember internet speeds back then and stuff like that. But, um, I totally watched the full 
Eagles game and it was on, I didn't have a Blackberry. I didn't have Android. I don't think really existed at that time. Uh, I remember the phone had a keyboard on it, but I believe it was, it was a windows mobile phone uh, because I loved windows mobile because to me, windows mobile felt like it was like windows computer, but in a mobile device. And that's why I liked it better than BlackBerry or other things at the time. And I watched a full Philadelphia Eagles game right from my cell phone, you know, in the mid 2000s. Right. Way before that was a thing. Right. Right. Before it was an actual thing. I had it caught a lot. I spent like 500 bucks just to watch that one game. I have not missed an Eagles game since 2000. Dedicated. Wow. Um, I was going to guess that it was the T-Mobile sidekick, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was not sidekick. I wound up falling into this thing with these rituals of weddings and uh, realized that there's this space for creatives in business in particular where we don't talk about creatives talk about business different than other business people do. Uh, like, for instance, uh, the primary purpose of my business is to feed my creative soul. There are other ways for me to make money and go into the world uh, and that are less stressful, less intimidating, less out of my depth than owning a business. But I created this business because the work that I could do elsewhere doesn't feed my soul this way. And so uh, because of that, my motivators are really different than a lot of other business people. And I think there are a lot of creative business people out there that are struggling because they're taking advice that's meant for businesses that are supposed to scale. And, and no one's talking about that part of it. Like from the beginning, fundamentally, do you see the world the way that I do? And so I've kind of developed this way of going about my own existence and realize that there are other people that need this too. So this is kind of the conversation that keeps coming up is how do you create alignment in your creative business where the things that you say um, and the, the way you structure your business is in line with how you feel about the work that you do. Right. So let me ask you this. Okay. Why do you not see value in scaling your business up, having a team of people that have that same mentality and think just like you do and get a team of five or 10 people and scale it up to where you could potentially be multi-million dollar a year business? Why do you not want to do that? But instead, it sounds like you're a solopreneur uh, working on projects that you're passionate about, why do you go that route instead of the other? Yeah. So it's a great question. And I'll say this first, there are aspects of my business that I would gladly scale. That's a product, anything like that. The core of my business. So my promise in the work that I do, the way I talk about it is I make holy shit stationary for brave and daring clients so they can be known and remembered by their people. And I'm deeply passionate about this. I actually just got off a call with a client, a, a couple that's getting married in France uh, this year. And um, I got to spend an hour hearing their story. Humans are deeply fascinating to me. I will probably have one or two more of those phone calls. Not Neanderthals, just humans. Just humans. <laughs> yes. Only, only homo sapiens, not any of the others. The next step for me is to go back into my corner and dream on behalf of these two people. And that's it. I get to devote my time to dreaming on their behalf. That's the thing that lights my soul on fire. And when I get to show up and present this thing that looks like them because I've gotten to know them, uh, I always say, I, if I'm going to reflect my clients and their work, 
in my work, that means that I have to see them. Uh, and so getting to know them, to see them as people, then to create something for them. Uh, and then, and when I say create, I'm talking the concept part, not the production. That's a whole different thing. And then to turn that thing afterwards into a produced piece that they get to hold, they get to send to their people, they get to create this moment for their guests. Um, that from me doesn't scale. And I have no interest in managing a company or dealing with all of the things of having, I want a few employees to help support this, but I would much rather stay at 10 clients a year and, and increase my average per client spend than go to 20 or 30 clients. Every, everybody who does what I do that I know that has a large staff winds up having to take on jobs that miss the very promise they have. Right. If I if I did 20 or 30 jobs a year, I can't promise holy shit stationary. I just can't. Something's going to slip through the cracks because I've committed to 10. I can guarantee that we at least have a chance. I can't always get there. That's part of the challenge of creative work is there's always risk involved. But I know that if I take on more than 10, that I'm going to have something fall through the cracks. And because the primary purpose of my business is to feed my creative soul, that would be so much so damaging to the purpose of why I, I do this, that it wouldn't be worth it for me. If I could create products, I'll scale that. It sounds like you've definitely have given it a, uh, a lot of thought, you know, it's not just like, nope, not going to do this. Uh, you know, you have very specific reasons and that's something that a lot of business owners have come on to this show talking about too, you know, being selective on who they pick to work with you know it's it's not so much that they're waiting for somebody to call them as much as it is that they're waiting to interview their next potential bingo there's a there's a real relationship that happens in the work that i do i'm with these people from uh anywhere from like six months to a year and a half it's a long relationship um i as i've grown as a person I realized that boundaries are actually a healthy thing. One of the things I say is it's an act of love to tell someone I can only give you my best and this is what it takes to get it. And that work means that I have to be really careful about who I let into my world uh, because I'm, I have to be vulnerable in my work with them. And what I've found is that so many times in business conversations, we all start with the assumptions about what the business is for, which is ultimately to maximize profits, often for an exit strategy. And that's obviously that works for so many people. For the nature of what I do, I'm not interested in that. Um, if I could exit at some point and make some money, maybe I'd much rather give it to my kids and let them carry on a legacy. But what I'm really concerned about in my work is primarily does it feed my soul? Am I connected with people who aren't sucking my soul? Some of the best money I've ever had in my business came from people who were really soul sucking. And I thought that my job was to maximize income. And what do you mean by soul sucking? Explain that a little bit more in detail. So specifically in creative work, I think what that looks like is there is the type of person who goes into a barber with or a hairdresser with two pictures and says, I want it to look like this and won't listen to the barber go. Yeah, but that person's hair is, you know, very thick and yours is fine or whatever it is. They're the people that go into their mechanics and say, I want you to do this and don't listen when the mechanic goes, that's actually not the core problem here. Right. My clients, uh, I want their input, but I also want them to recognize that I've devoted my life to this thing, to creating, to 
uh, dreaming outside of the boundaries of what other people do in my creative work, which very practically looks like I start with the assumption that your wedding invitation might not even be on paper. It might be on concrete or wood or metal or something else. It might not be rectangular. It might be three-dimensional. Um, I dream on their behalf because that's the craft that I've developed for myself. And if they don't give me the space to do my work, if uh, have you ever read Mike Michalowicz, The Pumpkin Plan? So this guy, this he's the, most people know him from his book, Profit First, but he has this book called The Pumpkin Plan, where he talks about growing your business, uh, using the metaphor of the people that grow the car-sized pumpkins, like the world, you know, award-winning pumpkins. Yeah, yeah, world's largest pumpkin, all that stuff. And one of the first exercises he has in the book is basically grading your past clients, taking the last year and um, uh, putting into a spreadsheet, um, your top revenue producing clients, say top 10. And then he has several uh, columns that you grade them on. You give them a letter grade, A through F. And they are things like, how excited are you to pick up the phone when they call? How uh, excited are they to send referrals your way? All of those kinds of things. And what I discovered is that I had a mindset that was really kind of rudimentary and elementary that believed that the clients that gave me the most money, I needed to love on over and over again to get more money from them and, and didn't pause for a second to go, oh my God, I am dying every time this person calls me. I avoid the phone. I'm, I get stressed. Like my, my heart rate goes up. Uh-huh. Because this isn't selling someone a product. This is getting into a relationship with someone to make something for them, to be their creative self, right? And in it's not when you're working with someone who um, is, you know, it's just like a, a, a romantic relationship. It can be narcissistic or abusive or any of those things. And for any of my clients that listen, I haven't had one in a very long time. Because I've learned to build boundaries around these things, but it takes essentially, so you know, Seth Godin talks about shunning the non-believer. And what I realized was that for a long time, I was trying to convince people to see the world the way that I do. And I, when I've never had someone that I had to convince uh, turn out to be a great client. They have only at best been mediocre. So you you talked about the wedding invites right there. And we've talked about everything that you do like your holy shit, uh, you know, stationary, holy shit, stationary. There we go. Uh, as that just rolls right off the tongue. So give us some ideas about what type of end products you actually develop, uh, you know, some ideas and maybe some examples, you know, verbally of what you've done in the past. Uh, I'll tell you about what I'm working on right now that I'm really excited about. We're throw a, a client is throwing a party and they throw them relatively regularly, meaning every few years. And it's their close friends and family and it's music themed. And so instead of sending them a paper invitation, we're sending them essentially a VIP music festival kind of kit. And it's including an actual record with song specific songs on it for them and uh we're getting custom art for the sleeve and the inner sleeve of the record is the invitation um and so instead of but you're 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 printing an actual like you're pressing an actual vinyl record we're lathe cutting it but yeah we're creating actual playable records for every single invitee and and then we're going to include things like um 
uh, VIP passes and festival bands and all those things too. Uh, so things like that, or I'll, I'll cast a sheet of concrete and turn that into an invitation screen print on it or uh, wood and, and metal. Um, my, my favorite one that I've done so far was a three chambered box. It almost looked like a jewelry box with an open lid on the top and, and two drawers and the open lid, you open it up and it had a light sensor uh, activated video display that displayed essentially a commercial for a birthday party. We filmed a full 60 second like teaser trailer for a birthday party with the celebrant like in the commercial and that played and then each drawer was for a different night of the three night party. Wow, that that is amazing and that is holy shit impressive. Uh, <laughs> see, play on words. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is. It reminds me of one of the more creative ideas that I I got. I went to see Marilyn Manson. Um, now this is before the weird accusation, so don't judge. Uh, okay, not post accusations, pre accusations. Uh, and Rob Zombie, Twins of Evil. When we just thought Marilyn Manson was weird, nothing worse than that. Right, when I thought it was just weird. Um, you know, so I went out to see Manson and Rob Zombie, Twins of Evil, and I bought their super exclusive VIP package that only a handful of people were able to get each show. This was out in LA. I was able to watch both shows from on stage, which was amazing. I actually, you're not allowed cameras, uh, but I had people, high, we, we came to an agreement. I got the best cell phone here. Allow me to record the show as much as I can. And then I'll share it to everybody, the link and all the pictures and videos. And yeah, we got everything. But two things stand out with what they did as far as marketing this package. One, Marilyn Manson. So you had VIP passes uh, like lanyards for both artists because it was with both bands. Okay. And, but the Marilyn Manson one was an actual bag of blood. Okay. I don't know if it was real blood or I assume fake blood. I can imagine there's a biohazard issue to have real blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was an actual bag of blood that you had as the VIP pass, which I was like, okay, I've got a thing of probably a hundred and some odd VIP passes from over the years of places I've been lucky enough to experience. I have nothing that compares to that. The second, the second thing is, is that if you bought that extreme VIP package to meet both Rob and Marilyn, they gave you a custom guitar, a special Epiphone guitar Twins of Evil with images like cartoon images of Manson and Rob Zombie. And then they both signed it with you there. So it's a custom Epiphone guitar that there may be a thousand of these out there in the world, you know, because. Right. And I own one of those and it's a custom piece of art from this show that was, I wouldn't consider a thousand or so, maybe 1500 mass made. I mean, that's a pretty low number. Um, and there's not many owners of these guitars and over time, hopefully it goes up in, in value more. But to me, for a concert goer, a music lover, as we've already established, we love music. 
that those two things stand out to me as some of the most creative marketing tactics I have seen for these VIP kits. What do you think of that? I, I mean, it's brilliant. Um, we, uh, by our nature, are storytellers as as humans, right? We glom onto stories, and what I believe is that most people do the regular thing because everybody else does it. And the the regular thing uh, betrays a lack of intention. And I believe that if you are asking people to invest in something, whether that's time or money or effort, uh, that needs to be honored. And I think that the way you honor that is by showing up with intention. So that even goes to things like a pricing model, right? I believe that... Um, most businesses, creative businesses specifically that charge like 50-50, if you're a wedding photographer and you've got a rate and you charge a 50% deposit and then 50% X days before the event, or if you, you know, have someone pay you a deposit for your interior design or whatever it is, and it's that 50% thing, that default 50% tells a story that says, I didn't think about this. I did the regular thing. And every little thing that you can do that shows intention shows uh, care and shows uh, love to the other person. Um, I can never remember the name of the guy, David Augsburger, that's who it was. There's a David Augsburger quote that says, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're nearly indistinguishable. That's a pretty darn good quote. It's heavy. Sounds like you read a lot. I mean, you've talked a couple times now about books and stuff like that. I So what it is, is first of all, I'm an Enneagram 7. So I am, I experience a lot of FOMO. So I'm a big like collector of experiences. And learning is a part of that. And so I, I also, I think the ADHD, there's a little bit of that, um, what do they call it? Um, when you obsess about a thing for a period of time, whatever that's called. I do six month deep dives on all sorts of different topics, learn more than the average person, not as much as an expert in a lot of fields. So you're, you're kind of like me, like you're a unicorn to where you know just enough to make you dangerous, but not actually like a true, true, true expert. Right. Uh, in, in a lot of areas that's, uh, have you ever seen, there's a TikTok sound and I, I, I saw the video where, it, where she first said it. Um, it was a, a creator talking about the jack of all trades quote, where she says, I'm always frustrated that uh, people end with a jack of all trades as a master of none. That's where we tend to end, right? Um, but the second half of that is, um, something, something, but better than one. I forget what the rest of it is, but the full quote is essentially, um, it would be, it's bad to be a master at nothing, but it's better to be a jack of all trades than to not be able to do anything. And what I've found is that because I love variety in my life, digging into a bunch of different areas and finding a way to synthesize that into the thing that I do is really powerful. It also doesn't hurt that um, I work primarily in the weddings and events space, which is a very unique space because how many people, you know, people, we talk about sales funnels and awareness and all these kinds of things. How many people even know that there's such a thing as a wedding stationer until they're engaged? Most people doesn't, don't know this exists. So there's no point for me to create a mailing list for potential couples 
because they're not going to know that they need me until they do. They're going to make a buying decision within less than a month. And then six months later, they're never going to need me again. So the business structure is different. And I've had to read a lot and, and gather a bunch of different sources to find the, the overlaps in the Venn diagram that meet my needs. Okay. So let me ask you, do you mind if I ask you a, I guess you can say it's kind of a personal invasive type question. Let's try it. Let's see. Let's try it. So you say that you try to stay around 10 customers a, a year or something like that, 10 projects with your rates, how much you charge, how long these projects take, stuff like that. Is that financially viable with that amount of customers for you to live the lifestyle that you want and be financially healthy? Yes. Uh, in the sense, like I, I'm very open about it. Yeah, that wasn't that invasive. It's not at all. I'm very open with these things. Right now, where I am in my business, my ideal life would be 10 clients a year, averaging $50,000 a client. And when I do my best work, that's what I'm dealing with. And you can kind of back out. If you think about it on your own, you can back out what a take home might look like from that. Um, and a big part of it is one of the things I've learned to do is separate my creative business from the production business. So my creative business makes its own money. And uh, to be clear, these are not actually two separate businesses, but it is two separate sides of my business. Two different divisions, branches. Essentially, essentially. Uh, and this all came from, I have a, a business coach uh, that I'm in uh, a group of his that I've been in for a long time named Sean Lowe. He writes and, and run, uh, writes a blog and runs a company called The Business of Being Creative. And he's guided me through a lot of this. And he used to work for a uh, a florist, uh, a very, very high-end florist uh, in New York. And um, essentially, the florist was the creative. And then Sean, who was a lawyer by trade, would come in afterwards and say, okay, and here's how the business allows him to do this. Here's what we need from you. Now, because I'm a solopreneur, I have to be both of those. But my production business is separate from my creative business. And then both of those are supported by like my business structure. So I can let my business be the bad guy. You're talking earlier about how when I'm looking for a client, it's almost uh, that I'm interviewing them right? And that is my business gets to be the bad guy. So one of the things that I do that a lot of people in my world don't is I charge a creative fee for just the idea. You don't want to be giving away your ideas for free. Well, uh, I, so yes, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, improvisational comedy. So I'll say yes. And absolutely. I believe you don't want to be giving your ideas away for free. I'm also not very precious about like the I can give an idea away or I'm not, I'm not too concerned about how it. So uh, what happens is I believe that for the most part, there aren't many people like me in terms of my willingness to consider things that other people haven't considered. In fact, if you inquire with me and you go to my website and inquire, one of the questions I ask is on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to consider an idea you've never seen before? And if the person answers seven or below 99.9% .9 of the time, they're not my client because I'm the one that takes them over the edge into this holy shit thing. I've never said shit so many times on the show in one episode. Okay, I love it. All right, it's built in, right? Um, and so uh, I was working with a wedding planner and it was before I had all these structures in place and they had an NDA client. So all I knew was their initials and they gave me all of like the brief, right? If you're ever working with an ad agency, you give them a creative brief is typically how that works. And then they come back and give you their solutions. Um, 
but if I, when I, I now, now know about myself that I can reflect my clients in my work, but I didn't get to see these people. So I couldn't reflect them in my work because I couldn't see them. And so I came back with a proposal and that proposal uh, wound up missing the mark because of some miscommunications amongst the, you know, it's like a game of telephone. And um, I realized at that point, first of all, yes, I wanted to get paid for the idea, but more importantly, the thing that charging for the creative side does is it establishes mutual trust and authority. Once you've paid me, you, you have now proven to me that you believe that I'm an expert in creating great ideas. If you haven't paid me, I can't know that. You can say it all you want, but you've not shown me in any tangible way. Once I've charged you for it and you've paid for it, you now have shown me that you trust me and I have shown you that I take this seriously enough to take your money and the responsibility that comes with that. And so what I find is that is a way to ensure mutual trust and then we can get to the creative work because creative work is hard, man, in terms of like the emotions associated with it. And people can get a little weird about it in ways they won't if it's not creative work. And so I've had to find a way. Especially if they don't like your direction that you're going. Bingo. And so I would much rather, again, like I said before, I'd rather find someone who sees the world the way that I do and follows along that journey than to try to convince somebody. Because if I'm convincing them, they can just as easily be unconvinced. And in a country of 330 million, how easy or hard is it to find those 10 people a year? So I, I once backed out the math based on some estimations and some things that I had read in terms of budgets, because typically the wedding that hires me, my minimum for wedding stationery is $20,000. And I know that sounds absurd. Please hear me for the average wedding. The average wedding in America right now is still like Well, they also, they've already, if they're still listening now, hopefully they are because you're quite entertaining. Um, you know, they've heard about some of your crazy ideas of what you've done for invitations and stuff. It's it's pretty wild stuff. I, I do want to say this. If you're throwing a wedding at all, you are already doing something that's a luxury. Because in order to get married, the first principle of a wedding is just two people getting married. That can be done most of the times at a courthouse for very little money. The minute that we say we're going to throw a party, we're having a luxurious moment. We're doing this to see and be seen, to connect with other people, for whatever your motivations are. So I have chosen to live in a world where, because my ideas require very expensive production, I'm I'm in a space that's mostly luxury. And in that space, uh, you know, if you're going to be spending 20 plus thousand dollars on invitations, that means your wedding is probably at least 250,000 or more which means there's going to be a wedding planner associated with it. And that wedding planner and you have to have a style that aligns with mine. You have to care about the things I care about. All that to say, the time I did this, these numbers, I realized I'm essentially, I need 0.01% of the weddings that could even possibly be a fit for mine. Like once I've eliminated almost all the weddings in America, I still only need less than 0.01% in order to do that. And really for me, what that looks like is because they almost always come from a wedding planner referral at this level. I need 30 wedding planners to send me one job every third year. And I've got my 10 a year. That's amazing. And that's all about networking and having the strong network to have the referrals and the wedding planners to know that you're going to give them white glove service. I mean, building the confidence with them. So my story real quick before we wrap up is I, this is during the great, uh, what was it in 2008? The great recession. They the great recession. Yes. So it was during the great recession and I was looking for work. I was working on my own independent consultant, but I couldn't find the full-time job. Uber just happened to be hiring. 
So I, I applied. Uh, it was for marketing. Uh, needed to be bilingual. I was. They were trying to embrace. What's the other language? Uh, Spanish. Spanish. So they're trying to do, you know, the market San Diego into uh, Tijuana, the bilingual stuff. And they were kind of like, bring us your ideas. You know, what are your ideas on what you would do if you were with marketing? Like, we want brand new ideas and we're going to hire somebody from one of these brand new ideas. And I, you know, made PowerPoint as everybody did. I got selected. They had a mixer where it was like uh, you mingle, mix, drink with everybody there. It was, I don't know, first interview I've ever had, only interview I've ever had in my life like that. Um, and then, you know, we've talked about the presentation with a few people during that time. And bam, they ended up not hiring me. Fast forward, you know, and uh, next thing you know, you have companies like T-Mobile partnering with Netflix and getting that to, you know, essentially to T-Mobile's customers for free, per se, to all of their things, which in a nutshell was essentially the idea that I was pitching, you know, like Uber, uh, Netflix, all that stuff. I mean, but that idea okay so like uber and t-mobile like that that's separate than what i was talking about with with uh, uh well t-mobile and netflix that's separate than what i was talking about with uber but it was kind of like the same same thing and they did end up doing things like that not to the degree that i proposed with netflix but it was more with they ended up partnering like with american express stuff like that and different partnerships for different people and that's where it kind of uh kind of bummed me out because i felt uh used when i saw that stuff coming out because they were looking for ideas and I gave them away that idea that I had that I thought was a gold mine and free and very easy to implement, which was uh, partnerships to get more people using Uber, uh, discounted rates, bundles, stuff like that. And I don't know. It's it just one of the things that kind of live and learn. That's a drag. And I essentially fundamentally hate that whole process for two reasons. One, they asked you to work for free. And I think that's awful. Uh, and that that's, you know, that's a part of a lot of the interview world. And um, obviously, you have to be in a place of privilege to opt out of that system. I completely recognize that. I wish more people were able to do that. Uh, secondly, that was the only time I've ever done it most times. And then I started going though, I'm interviewing you guys. I mean, if I work for your company, it's going to be because I want to work for your company. And I don't like back then, a lot of people thought I was arrogant. Uh, nowadays that's kind of more common. This is, I think this is the shift, the shift that has been most powerful in my life is the one about boundaries. It's, uh, it's the act of love thing to say, I can only give you my best. And what I realized is I thought that boundaries were a mean thing, but what I realized is boundaries protect me from the things that keep me from doing my best, which is what anybody I want to work with should want from me, right? And so they should, they should, uh, if they are not short sighted, they should be happy. They are not short sighted. They should be happy to engage in a process of mutual interview. The other part of the thing, the story that you talked about that I really 
kind of hate. Uh, there's this guy named Blair Enns that wrote a book called um, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. And it's primarily for ad agencies. And it's in, in the ad agency world, essentially, you know, if you've ever watched Mad Men, it's this like, um, there are a lot of times when an agency wants to win new business, they will pitch the entire idea before they've ever even talked to the company, they will essentially theorize what the company's struggles are. They'll try to do as much research as they can, and then they'll come up with a solution. And in a lot of cases, a uh, a company will send out an RFP that gives them a short brief, and then they're supposed to come back with ideas. What Blair talks about in one of, I think he's got like 12 points in the manifesto. One of them is we can't prescribe without first diagnosing. And that's the thing that I hate about these kind of spec work creative things is I can't solve your problem without you giving me the space to actually explore your problem. I can't trust you to know what your problem is. You know what the symptoms are, but you don't actually know what the problem is necessarily. Because this is the world I live in, if we have some conversations and you give me access to who you are and what you're experiencing, whether it's a wedding couple or a B2B situation, um, I can diagnose, we can talk about that diagnosis. And if we're on the same page, if we're in agreement about what the problem is, then, then I can prescribe something. Then I can create the creative work. And so what that says to me is that they didn't take their problems seriously. If they were asking you to solve problems without first giving you space in the company to know what the actual lay of the land was. Yeah. And never, ever, ever got a formal interview itself, which really, I mean, every one of the managers and the regional director was like, yeah, we were blown away. We did not get any ideas even close to what you brought to the table. Uh, now at that time, I didn't have a degree. So that hurt me because the Great Recession is where they started implementing this uh, structure to where, oh, if you don't have college, we don't want you. Why? Because there were so many people looking for work. Bingo. And it was just an easy filter. But before that, I was able to get almost any job I wanted just off of experience alone. So it actually forced me to go to college later in life and get a degree. But it changed the whole trajectory of of my life you know it, it really is crazy how things change once i'm the same exact person i did not learn anything in school that is of value today that you know that i didn't know maybe a few minor things with tech because i did study information sciences and technology but i really did not learn anything that was revolutionary that changed my life because it's like i already know this and i'm I, you know like i remember fighting it out with my marketing teacher uh professor who we're still friends with today because i was his biggest PETA uh, uh student he's ever had but i'm like look you're saying do this in the real world given this situation, and I would explain each and every situation and why what they're teaching in the real world actually doesn't work. And if I did this, I would be fired, you know, but just having that document behind my name, I mean, it changed my life. And I doubt that you are anywhere near the only person to say that, you know, college serves a purpose, but sometimes you just have to have that real world experience. I mean, I think most of the time. Uh, 
that's powerful. Yeah. Anyways, uh, we got to start wrapping up here. And, uh, you know, this has been an amazing, a phenomenal interview. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, last question of the day, we got to ask, where can people digitally? Remember, I'm staying digital. So if you get physical, not my problem. I believe in digital too. Yeah. Yeah. If they're stalking me in person, that's a whole different thing. Yes. Right, that's where I said. I said digitally stalking. Uh, Instagram is a place I love to hang out. A fine press all one word uh, and then afinepress.com and if you are a creative business that wants to talk about these things afinepress.com slash four hyphen creatives is the place to hang out there awesome awesome that sounds great hey matthew this was amazing thank you so much for coming on my friend i think thank i you. learned a lot and i you know this was an incredible story so thank you again thank you so much yeah cheers wow that was an incredible chat with matthew right First, you all know the routine if you found this interview helpful. If it sparks some warm and fuzzies, do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out because you know Shark Bite Biz is the greatest kept secret out there in the world of small business, please share us out to your friends, your colleagues, your family, anywhere that you dwell on the interwebs, whether it is Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Mines, Macedon, I mean, even Rumble. I don't care. Share us out there. I would love nothing more than to see Shark Bite Biz and A Fine Press out there trending. Now, let's get back to the real rock star of the show, Mr. Matthew Wingard. So, two quick points on what Matthew said. First, I love that he picks his customers. Don't bring on customers that are going to be a pain in the butt just because you're desperate for business, okay? They will suck the life out of your organization and your team will be miserable. I mean, that's just the fact of life right there. Don't sell out of fear. Don't sell out of being desperate. Do kind of what Matthew does, which is interview with the process, you know, with your potential customer and make sure that they are going to be a fit for your business so that they aren't going to be disruptive to you. Okay. Number two is going above and beyond and making yourself stick out in a hyper marketed world where we're all fighting for this same attention space span. I mean, I'm fighting for your attention span versus you scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or something like that right now. So trying to find a way to reach your audience, whether it's in person or digitally or a hybrid of both, is really critical to reach that goal. And I think Matthew's point of doing quote unquote holy shit stationary in order to make your mark memorable should be something that you are reaching for remember you know the old cliche if you're gonna go do it do it right okay awesome stuff matthew thank you so much for coming on sharing your expertise and how you allow people to express themselves creatively by thinking outside of the box please check out his website the link is going to be down below in the description as always question of the day what do you think of matthew's unique approach to stationary 
Leave a comment down below if you're watching on YouTube. But don't forget, you can now comment on Spotify episodes. And speaking of Spotify, video is on Spotify now, too. Last week, we launched it. Now it's there fully. We're also on iHeartRadio, Deezer, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, pretty much any app that exists for audio. You can find a copy of this show as well as most video platforms. So, do you want to be on the show? If so, shoot an email, interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. Watch it on YouTube or on Spotify. You can join us. $3 a month, you become a baby shark. Also, one last shout out to our amazing sponsor, an SAP Platinum Global Partner, Sador, S-E-I-D-O-R. If you're running QuickBooks and your business has $25 million or more in revenue, it's time to move off QuickBooks. Give me a call. Let's chat or go to Sador.com. Learn more about the SAP offerings in the small to mid-business space. Hey, you all know this by now, but I'll tell you again, I'm David Strauss. This is Shark Bite Piz. We'll see you all next episode. Cheers. You just experienced Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. Please like, comment, and subscribe to the show to help us spread the word about personal, professional, and business growth. Want to be on the show? Send an email to interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. A special shout out to our sponsor, SAP Platinum Partner, Sador. Get off QuickBooks and move your business to the next level. Reach out for more info. Thanks for listening and see you next time.